the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. And back. Delighted to um, bring back to the show our good friend, Professor Donald Siegel. Don is the Foundation Professor of Public Policy and Management, Director of the School of Public Affairs at Arizona State University. He and his uh, co-author, uh, Robert Sauer, had an important piece, really good, I want to commend to you, at, uh, that's been published by the American Institute for Economic Research. We've talked to Professor Siegel several times about the response to COVID-19, the coronavirus, and what it is doing socially and economically and politically. And their new piece, as I say, at the American Institute for Economic Research, AIER.org, has a um, has a very, uh, uh, shall I say, tantalizing or titillating title, Pandemic Response is Our Vietnam. Dr. Siegel, welcome back. Thanks for coming. My pleasure, Seth. Really appreciate it. All right, lay it out for us. Uh, the, uh, I, I, I've read your piece. I actually read it twice because I think it's really pregnant with a lot of important points and um, something that hopefully, hopefully will move some public opinion or at least some political leadership opinion. Talk to us about what you and uh, Professor Sauer were getting at here. Well, thank you very much. You the, the, it's striking. There are eight similarities between our misguided response to Vietnam and our misguided response to the coronavirus. Eight similarities. Number one, they both began with a state of emergency, mm-hmm. right? In Vietnam, it was the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which launched the full-scale involvement into the war. The emergency was never lifted. Mm-hmm. We are now in our 10th month of a so-called state of emergency, mm-hmm. the largest, the longest state of emergency in history. Right. Number two, the concept of groupthink was developed uh, by a psychologist using Vietnam as the example. Irving Janus, and right. I remember reading that book. I don't, think, I don't think they assign it anymore. I read it. I remember reading it in poli-sci. Well, yeah. in the spring of 2020, we witnessed an even greater form of groupthink. Mm-hmm. We were, were told that we had 15 days to flatten the curve, right. stay home, save lives, and we're all in this together, which, of course, really meant we're all forced to be in this together. They were all sold to us as patriotic acts, mm-hmm. uh, which were espoused by even the most conservative, by the most devout conservatives, who would normally be repelled by blatant theft of private property and, and services and severe totalitarian mm-hmm. restrictions mm-hmm. on economic, mm-hmm. personal, and religious mm-hmm. liberty. Mm-hmm. They all went along with it. And those of us uh, who questioned the virtues of the quarantines and the lockdowns, we were vilified mm-hmm. and censored from mainstream and social media. In fact, one of the first articles that I saw that questioned the wisdom of these lockdowns was your wonderful article oh, with Bill Bennett. Thank you. Okay, thank uh, you. And you were we we right got a lot of heat, I'll tell you. I mean, I, I, and a lot of conservatives 
took us on. I mean, I think right. I, we were denounced by National Review. I, it was it was not a comfortable place to be, quite honestly. It was against the grain, yeah, and it's yeah. still against the grain. There's still this enormous group thing. Yeah. Uh, number three, mission creep. Right. Which became popular during Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Remember, we were told one more wave of troops, more troops. Lyndon Johnson, the war will be over by Christmas, mm-hmm. and we're hearing the same nonsense. Fifteen days to flatten the curve is now fifteen months at least to fully eradicate the virus, and now they're telling us that even when people are vaccinated, we're not going back. Right, you can't travel all. after the va- I saw that too. Yep, you're right. Good. Well, and it's always one more lockdown, right. just two more right. weeks. This is the last one. Right. Don't worry, it'll be over. Well, and then it's not over. Right. So mission creep. We'll, we'll return Number to all four. of these in depth. I just want you to, you're doing a great job. You're laying it out. Perfect. Keep going. Number yeah. four, yeah. which is, I think, the most egregious example, which we saw last week, was willful distortion of information by government officials. This abhorrent interview of Dr. Fauci, Mm -hmm. the Ayatollah of Mm -hmm. this new state-run religion, Mm -hmm. who admitted blatantly that he's been lying to us about herd immunity. You know, normally when a public figure is confronted with palpable evidence that, that he's lied, he exhibits some type of contrition. For this. Well, uh, to your point, San, uh, Dr. Deborah Burks resigned when it was found out she was violating the orders that she was imposing on everyone else. To her credit, you know, she left. Right. Well, right. well but they don't apologize. No, no, of There's course no not. contrition no. at all. He right. seemed rather proud of the yes. fact that he had deceived us because he thinks he's not only the minister of health, he's the minister of propaganda. Yeah, truth and information. Well. You bet. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, willful distortion of information. Okay. Number five, which is related, is inaccurate statistics. In right. Vietnam, it was body counts, which were, uh, you know, o- overestimated in order to justify more money or whatever. Uh, and in the case of COVID, of course, it's cases and yep. deaths mm-hmm. with the virus, not of the virus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're overstated for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Number six is the sunk cost trap and fallacy. Uh, leaders doubling down on, uh, you know, policies that have been shown to be failures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the lockdown didn't work the, the first time, so let's do it again. Uh, we have to do it because we invested so much in it in the past, mm-hmm. and we're seeing... Uh, we see blatant evidence of that. Mm-hmm. Number seven, Vietnam was a poor man's war. Yeah. It was fought by the poor and the lower middle class. And we see the same thing with the coronavirus, which is really hurting the poor and the lower middle class. Uh, lockdowns are a luxury of the rich, and the elites and the professional class are not affected as much by the lockdowns as the poor and the working class, right. for obvious reasons. right. 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 Uh, right. And then finally, there was, there was no exit strategy. Mm. LBJ had no exit strategy. It became a quagmire, like this one is becoming, mm-hmm. uh, until Nixon uh, identified an exit strategy. And I'm not hearing any exit strategy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so eight similarities. But one of the points that we make in the argument, in the uh, essay, is that this is actually worse than Vietnam, because at least in Vietnam... We didn't make people under the age of 18 fight the war. Mm-hmm. 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 And what we're doing now to our young people is horrendous. It's a great it's a point. Crime. No, it's a it's great child abuse. Yeah. 
And uh, it, it's never been done before, and it should never be done again. And it's uh, ongoing. I mean, now they're delaying the starting of the schools again. You and I uh, started talking. When did you and I start talking? Probably May or June, maybe over the early summer time, maybe when I started uh, conversing with you about this stuff, I'm thinking, uh, Professor Siegel. And the reason I'm asking, I'm just going back in my memory a little bit, because I will tell you how wrong I have been. I had thought that all of this, all these eight things and, and, and the kind of stuff we're still putting up with, I thought it would have I thought it would have ended by the end of November, quite frankly. And what's interesting is if you look um, or listen to um, to Joe Biden, um, he's talking about more and more of it. He's talking about our darkest days ahead. He's talking about a uh, hundred days uh, uh, of 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 more of more management with masks, uh, enforcement of mask orders. There's a serious question going around in public policy realms as to whether he can he can you know. Uh, issue lockdowns that governors and, and mayors have traditionally been able to and had the authority to do. I mean, these the it is weird how it is ramping up right when I thought it was going to recede. I've just been wrong about that. I know, and I think we're going to have a national lockdown. You do? I think that, okay. And Fauci's already hinting at it. He, of course, we don't know what, what the real truth is, because he, he's like Colonel Jessup in A Few Good Men. Yeah. He doesn't think we can handle the right. truth, obviously. Right, right, right. So we don't and know what, if, whether himself, what comes right? out of his mouth is right. the truth. Right, and becomes But a, I think they're going to have a national lockdown, a national mask mandate. And, you know, here's a little more history for okay. you. It, it really galls me when he says 100 days mask mandate. Right. You know who the first, you know, the, the, the phrase of the first hundred right, days right. goes back to FDR. Exactly. Yeah, there's nothing scientific about a hundred days. Well, there's that, but it shows you how pathetic and how far <laughs> we've fallen. Yeah. What is FDR known for? That we have nothing to fear but fear yeah. itself. <laughs> right. And here we have a new president right. who's a COVID bedwetter who says, in my first hundred days, we we should cower in fear and have a national mask mandate. That's how far we've fallen. It's an uh, odd, he doesn't I, understand the irony of that. No, I, but, I suppose not. But I'll tell you, when he keeps talking about 100 days, I just think, what science is it's so It's so obvious a number as to... As to raise the question of of its uh, of its unscientific nature, Professor Siegel, I got to hit the break. You laid it out. I want to come back and go into each of these a little bit more in depth if you have the time. Happy to do that. Great, my great, friend. great. We'll be right back with Professor Donald Siegel, Foundation Professor of Public Policy and Management and Director of the School of Public Affairs at ASU. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Delighted to have with us Professor Donald Siegel at ASU, Foundation Professor of Public Policy and Management. He and his colleague Robert Sauer have a piece at the American Institute for Economic Research. Our pandemic responses are Vietnam. Don, uh, before we get into a little more depth of the eight um, eight areas that you found these comparisons in or made these analogies to, let me let me try this with you because you're a professor of an expert in public policy and there's just this odd irony I cannot understand. It seems to me in a normal world and maybe that's the key but in a normal world political leaders want to chalk up successes. 
um, less crime, less drug use, less everything bad and more of everything good, more jobs, more employment, less welfare. You, you know the drill. And and it seems to me that there's this odd thing that has taken place for at least a year now, or at least when it comes to covid where a lot of these elected leaders, governors and mayors in particular, are investing in um, public policy malfeasance, the kinds of things that are going to show increasingly terrible numbers on everything. Um, Sam about San Francisco with a guest last week. San Francisco, particularly hard hit by COVID, has six times the number of drug overdose deaths this year than COVID deaths. Um, California. You saw, maybe you didn't, but there was this Politico headline about a week ago, Locked Down California Runs Out of Reasons for Surprising Surge. These numbers keep going up with COVID, or at least cases do, and yet they keep engaging, these publicly elected leaders keep engaging in what seems to me not just economic, but social suicide of their communities. Is there any explanation for it, or am I overstating the case? I think people are just focused on one variable. Okay. And that's the problem. Okay. This is a fundamental flaw in the design of this public policy. Okay. There was never any analysis of trade-offs. It's the first thing we teach, I'm teaching next week, and the first thing I teach is that there are trade-offs in decision-making. They've decided to focus on one variable and have this very narrow focus on this one variable and they've committed the greatest act of masochism in history in order to, uh, I think the term that I heard used was, they're burning down the house because there's a hornet's nest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they don't care if they burn down the house, apparently. And, and you said before that San Francisco's hit by COVID. No. San Francisco is hit by the lockdown right. and the quarantine. Right. And the reopenings, right. that's what's destructive, not the actual virus. Well, <laughs> that, that is the point here. There are that many people here. that perished because of the virus in San Francisco. No, that is the point. That's where I would think. I mean, you know the industry better than I do, and I guess that there will be as much uh, uh, censorship in it as there is on everything else. But it seems to me like classic textbooks could be written on failure of public policy in the, on this one issue. The failures the of worst. public policy, right? This is what we said in the essay. Mm-hmm. I never thought that there would be a public policy that would be worse than Vietnam. But now we, we've set a new standard for monumental government failure at all levels, as you point out. Not just the federal government. By the way, who's responsible for the most massive government failure at the federal level? It's the same people that are designing the response to the That's failure. That's correct. The CDC. It's, the, right. it's called the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Mm-hmm. Oh, great job. Mm-hmm. Great so, job you did. So, no, that, that's so actually we a very prepared. good point. Yeah, that's actually a very good point. The word prevention is And the budget goes up. Their yeah. budget went up. Yeah. That, no, that's a really good point. So the thing that I think I pull out of your eight analogies to Vietnam that worries me more than any, and maybe you have a different one, and, and I'd love to hear it if so. But the one that worries me more than anyone is your third one, I think it is. It's the mission creep part. Because it does seem to me right now, if you listen to our political leaders, there's no end to this thing. We heard about a surge. Now we're hearing about a surge upon a surge, you know, we're right. We're hearing about don't I think you said it. Don't travel. You can't travel even after you get the vaccines. 
Um, you're hearing from Joe Biden about desires to do things for 100 days. And then they tell us the funniest of all things that must make you really laugh, Professor Siegel, is that this isn't political. This isn't political. It's patriotic. That's the funniest of them all to me. Because what they're funny. doing, what they're doing by saying that, as you well know, what they're doing by saying that back to Vietnam, if you questioned national security, you, you secrets in the name of national security. Yeah. Right. What they're doing by saying that is you you, you can't criticize this. Uh, it's it's basically um, this is this is this is the shutdown of the conversation. When we say this isn't political, it's patriotic. That's like what they were telling us about Vietnam or any other national security. Well, when you have a state-run religion, which we've established, uh, but we've had at the same time a concomitant result is that we've created a tyrannical public health police state. Uh And they will never give up until we resist, which is what we said at the end of the essay. Uh It's time for the people to resist and and to go back to normal and not uh, abide by these tyrannical restrictions. Uh, just that they, in, there was resistance during Vietnam. Right. That's the lesson that I would take away, is that if this is like Vietnam, then we need to engage in nonviolent resistance to it at some point. I'm not sure. I think we're getting close to that point, especially if, if Joe Biden comes in and tries to have a national lockdown, as I suspect he will. It's so interesting to me these analogies because they they cut in some interestingly in, in some interestingly different ways. So you know there's there's to this day obviously still the wound and scar of Vietnam, and we look back and we say no more Vietnams, and we got over something called a Vietnam syndrome in the Gulf War, the first one I suppose. And or did we? <laughs> and, um, and 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 I wonder if we're going to someday say no more COVIDs because this country has changed, right? In 1968, which you know might have been a, might have been as high a year, uh, the height of the Vietnam Wars as any other year. In 1968, we did we did have these other things going on, including a Hong Kong flu, which took over a hundred thousand American lives. No one talks about that. No one thinks about that. Will we have a no more COVID-19s and no more coronavirus shutdowns moment? I don't know. Well, you know, Anthony Fauci views you and me not as individuals. We're, we're germ factories. Mm-hmm. We're subjects in his experiments. These, these infectious disease experts would love to run these experiments all the time. Yeah. Uh, these non-pharmaceutical, these pseudoscientific non-pharmaceutical experiments. What they've done is if they've cleverly figured out how to get everyone to participate in the experiment. Yeah. Forcefully, of course, because mm-hmm. nobody ever asked us whether mm-hmm. we wanted to be subjects. Right. But they, they've also managed, and this is what's really sickening, is to have our children take part in this yeah. experiment. Right. Right. That's the one that it's so hard to get past, isn't it? And that, that's The demonic. disease that doesn't affect them, they pay the highest price. Let me well, come- not only are they paying a price and not being educated and not having a normal social life and being turned into a bunch of you know, germaphobes, which is sickening when I see it, is they're also going to be paying the price in taxes later on. When, when the chickens come home to roost on this financially, yeah. Yeah. This, there's such monumental cost to this virtue signaling nonsense. Oh, I think there is. Let's talk about that when we come back. I can keep you another segment, Dr. Siegel. Would love to. Great. I'll be right back. (laughs) 
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Professor Don Siegel from ASU is our guest talking about his piece he co-authored with Robert Sauer from the, at the American Institute for Economic Research. That's where it's published. Um, Don, let me ask you this. We just were getting there on the way to the break. You know, when we think of public policy, that's that's your area of expertise, we often invoke it in the name of protecting our children. And it's for better or worse. And it seems to me, most times I think it's it's for better, but we can debate that another time. It seems to me we've turned that on its head when it comes to COVID-19, where adults are engaging in social policy and domestic policy um, change to address something that doesn't harm children, while the solutions will dramatically affect our children. And I give you just today's news. This is the oddest thing. You have the Arizona Superintendent of Education, Kathy Hoffman, calling for uh, two more weeks of no school, on, calling on the governor to order two more weeks of no school. I've never heard of a superintendent not wanting the kids in the classrooms. It's a very odd place to be, isn't it? It's sickening. It's it's perverse. It's deviant. Uh, asking, forcing the young to make sacrifices for the elderly mm-hmm. is out of... Uh, yeah, it, it, it's never been done before, and kids have never been out of school. Even during the Blitz, right. in in England, kids went to school. I mean, kids have been out of school. Some kids have been out of school for ten months. Yep, that that's a crime against humanity. Uh, and and other countries, even countries that had severe lockdowns, much more severe than we've had, were smart enough to keep the schools open because. Uh, there's no. There's also the science, which they claim to be following the science, says that the schools should be open. There's a strong consensus on that, and uh, and she knows that this is this is pandering to the teacher unions and the bedwetters uh, in the teacher unions and the and teachers as well. Is it that teachers unions are overly protective of their membership that? just would rather not have to go in. I mean, what we know from the science, at least the science I've read, is the examples we have of adults in classrooms um, acquiring COVID is that the sourcing of it isn't from their charges, isn't from the pupils, isn't from the students. It's from other adults elsewhere. In fact, yes, you know. there's no empirical evidence to support the notion that the virus is spread in schools. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't exist. But what's really galling about this is teachers are so-called essential workers. Right. No other essential workers are protected the way the teachers are. Uh, you know, the, the woman who I see every day in the supermarket, uh, she's an essential worker. She comes into work every day, not online, every single day. And she's in, in, you know, she's a lot of people. And, uh, you know, why are, are they treated as a special class of essential workers? What they is the answer be. to that? A strong union, I think, is the answer. Well, to that. right. It's politics. Mm-hmm. That's why. Yeah, I think it's the strong uh, union. Unless they're not essential. For this same attitude, you, you travel in post-secondary education. Is there is there this same attitude among the professoriate generally, or is it a little more relaxed? I'm guessing it's about the same. It's about the same. Yeah. I mean, some professors uh, come in and some don't, and uh, some are comfortable with teaching online, and so it's not a big deal for them. But 
uh, we would come in if the students came in. I, I, I would love to see the students come in. I'm, I'm teaching next week, and I'm curious to see how many so students So how does that work in a class that you teach? You do it in person, but there's an online option or a, or a visual option? Yes. In, inside, physically in the classroom, you can attend either physically or virtually. And uh, so you have to teach to those that are there and those that are online. But we're essential workers. Yeah. And we should be here. If the, if the students want to come in and learn in class, we should be there for them. We're essential workers. And I don't see why we should be treated like uh, differently than other essential workers. Um, Professor Siegel, I've never asked you this, and I'm going to a break, and, and, and if you want to save it for another time, that's fine. You can tell me. But, you know, I'm just I'm, – I'm, Noticing, you know, at the bottom of your of your piece, it has your tagline, Foundation Professor of Public Policy, uh, three degrees from Columbia University, you know, a very elite education. I'm wondering if you might feel comfortable talking about how someone with that kind of background ends up ideologically where you were. Did you change views along the way? Were you always in this perspective? Would you Would you like to talk about that either sometime or in the next segment? I'd love to have you on that. Uh, sure, I can talk you about You want to stick around for one yeah. more segment, do a little of your political sure. journey? I'd love it. I'd love it because I'm trying to understand and help by uh, in understanding, help promote conservative um, conservative conversion stories. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. I take it every single morning, Balance of Nature. It's fantastic. One daily dose gives me 10 servings, 10 servings of 31 different fruits and vegetables, all organic, powerful, potent stuff to boost your energy, improve your health, boost your immunity. I am convinced it's what's kept me healthy all of last year in a way I had never been before when everything was against you. And right now, Balance of Nature is offering free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order of their fruits and veggies. It's a great deal. Give them a call at 800-2468-751 or go to balanceofnature.com and use discount code BALANCE. Our guest has been uh, Professor Donald Siegel, and we were talking about his and his uh, colleague um, Robert Sauer's piece at the American Institute for Economic Research, The Pandemic Responses of Vietnam. And it was just dawning on me, uh, Professor Siegel, because I'm always interested in these stories, worldview stories. If someone said, I have a professor of public policy, Donald Siegel, uh, B.A., M.A., Ph.D., Columbia University, Someone might say, oh, where in the Biden administration is he going to work? You know, how, how do you with your pedigree end up where you are on things worldview, sir? Well, I grew up in Brooklyn. Yeah. All right. All the more so. <laughs> all right. So therefore, uh, I never met a Republican right. until I went to college. Right. I, I actually thought it, it was a form of mental illness. Sure. Sure. <laughs> given where I grew up. Sure. And, uh, you know, it's well known that Jews from Brooklyn uh, vote for Democrats, not Republicans. It's, it's in the Torah. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, so, but well, luckily when I was an undergraduate at Columbia, there was a course called the Economics of Laissez-Faire. Uh-huh. And I was exposed to the ideas of the great Chicago economists, like Friedrich Hayek, Milton Friedman, George Stigler. Uh, 
And just reading a book like Capitalism and Freedom really made me understand the importance of markets and free markets and uh, people making their own choices. And, you know, I always remembered what Milton Friedman said about the four ways to spend money. Have you ever heard that? Uh, that Yeah, I've seen those lectures, but rehearse it for me. I couldn't do it off the top of my head. Well, it's really great because, uh, and I never really thought of it this way. He said that there are four ways to spend money. He said, you can spend your own money on yourself. Right. And that's the best way to spend money because you know exactly what you want. Okay. Right. Then you can spend your own money on others you know personally. Mm-hmm. So let's say I buy you a gift. Well, as we know from last week, that doesn't always work out. <laughs> okay. All right. People return sure. gifts. They don't know. They don't match other people's preferences. Sure. So that's not so great sometimes. And number three is you can spend other people's money on yourself, which is what you do when you're on an expense account. And right. So you spend quite lavishly. Yeah. Uh, and then finally he would laugh and he would say, well, then we have spending other people's money on others you do not know personally. And he would laugh and he would say, that's what government does. Okay. okay. And, and, and that's where we need to be careful. <laughs> where we need to evaluate and assess uh, the way government spends money and hold governments accountable for their actions, so, uh, I mean, which it, gets back to our previous yeah, discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So, so I'm wondering, so was it the opening up of an argument or a theory or set of theories and ideas to you that you had never, want, never even contemplated? It, it, was it something well, like that? Economy, was it like a Plato's man leaving the cave kind of experience for you? Is that what well, one thing I love about economists is, unlike other social scientists, they, they care about efficiency and performance. Uh-huh. They don't just look at equity. Uh-huh. They do. Some economists look at equity. I think they place too high a weight on that, mm-hmm. but, and they don't look at efficiency. But economists are the only ones that are asking tough questions. Like I mentioned before on the, on the pandemic response, or what are the trade-offs? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, if you decide that COVID is the only thing that matters in the state of Arizona— uh, what about a year ago when the public health officials were telling us that the opioid crisis was the number one public yeah, health problem? Right. Did that just disappear? No, it's back and it's worse and we don't care anymore. It's worse. Yeah. So there are trade-offs in decision-making. That's right. part of economics. Right. And we have to take account. We have to do cost-benefit analysis and have a true – and we we never did any of that. When it came to this pandemic response, we had acted emotionally, uh, and I think based on journalistic, uh, unethic, unethical journalism, yeah, yeah. Uh, and emotions, and we didn't act rationally as an economist would, and evaluate the problem, and and do it, um, and care a little bit about efficiency. Yeah, I think that's right. I think journalism plays a big part in this. Um, not only standard journalism, your CNNs, but maybe the worst crime might might be the 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 big 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 tech journalism, social media journalism, and the and censorship they engaged in when um, scientists, true scientists, physicians, MDs, had alternate points of view. I was shocked when I saw the faculty of Stanford vote ex-cathedra to denounce Scott Atlas. That shocked me. That just shocked me. But that's the world we're in now, I guess. It is. 
um, and there's limited freedom of speech, and this is part of the group thing. Yeah. You know, uh, there's people, and people have so much invested in this, this gets back to the sunk cost fallacy. They, they've invested so much in these lockdowns and these quarantines right. and these reopenings. They, can, they just and, can't, yeah, they can't afford to and, be wrong, right. And, you know, I want to stress one thing, yes, because uh, what, we are, what we are complaining about on our side, we're not complaining about taxation to pay for people's health care. We're not complaining about regulation. I mean, if you look at the Mountainside case, the heroic uh, Tom Hatton of Mountainside, he was not complaining about the regulation. In fact, the governor's office lauded him for his compliance with the regulation. Uh, what we're complaining about is locking down, shutting down establishments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what's so infuriating about the new lockdowns is these are establishments that are complying with the regulations that's right. that are that's being right. shut down. And robbing the, uh, the, the human and the man. No the reason. Right to, right. Outdoor dining? Right. I mean, what insanity, right. uh, what, what insane planet are we living on where outdoor dining would be restricted? Robbing the man to earn his own price for his bread. Don Siegel, God bless you. Thank you, sir. Much appreciated. Thank you, sir. As always, I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Thanks for spending some of your uh, afternoon with us. Great way to kick off the year. A little political philosophy, a little contemporary politics. It was was sort of interesting to me. Um, It came up in my interview with Brandon, and then it came up again. It was invoked by Professor Siegel in 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 the interview we just concluded. The same book, one we haven't talked about in a long time, and it was Milton Friedman's book uh, from 1962, I think, Capitalism and Freedom, where he was talking about the unnatural division between – uh, social policy and economic policy. He, he he opens the book that way. He writes, it is widely believed that politics and economics are separate and largely unconnected, that individual freedom is a political problem and material welfare an economic problem, and that any kind of political arrangements can be combined with any kind of economic arrangements. You know, if you go back and read yet another book that preceded it by a year or two, uh, Conscience of a Conservative, that's exactly what Barry Goldwater is railing against, that that notion that um, politics and economics are separate. They are not. That's why he speaks so much about and writes so much about the part the Democrats as the party of the stomach and the Republicans as, uh, as the party of the whole man that takes an account of more than just appetite. You think about the experiment we have engaged in, I don't know, is it a 30, 40, maybe now 50-year experiment we've engaged in with China, that you can have an economics of liberty and a sociology or a domestic policy of tyranny. And that works for just a very little while. And then, to quote Whitaker Chambers, you look at Xinjiang province and you hear the screams. There are always the screams. We'll pick it up tomorrow, folks. Until then, Happy New Year. God bless you. And class dismissed.